too fast. Drop. Too furious. I'm too fast for y'all, man. Drop. Too fast. Drop. Too furious. Oh, I'm too fast. Okay, hello everyone. Welcome to Too Much, Too Fast, Too Furious. I am your host, Ian. I'm a Clay, the first guest who agreed, despite myself, to be on this thing. Clay, why don't you uh, give the audience a bit of an overview of who you are and what you do? I'm a person. Uh, <laughs> I I am. Uh, my, I'm Clay, Clay McDermott. I'm assuming that's going to be how I'm credited. I do a lot of We're research. you going to get your government name on this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm a, it's on all my other projects. Um, <laughs> and I'll, if I'm going to cite my papers, that's where that it's cited. True, yeah. Um. I, I've done a lot of research into and a lot of work on exploitation films. Also a lot of stuff on like mid or Victorian era going into the uh, the fin de siècle literature, monster literature. Also, I write tabletop role-playing games and an audio drama and know a lot about theater. I used to write plays, now I don't, and now I just kind of sit around judging them. Um, and for some reason, I'm on a show about Too Fast, Too Furious. <laughs> That's the trajectory of all people in theater. First you make plays, then you judge them, then you go on a podcast about Fast and Furious. Yeah. So, Clay, we're going to start with a brief synopsis of the film just to kind of give the audience a sense of what we're working with and to, because listen, I'm on watch. It's going to be watch 13 after the recording mm -hmm. of this podcast. So I figured that my plot synopsis is going to be excruciating for most people to listen to. So I'm going to let you take the reins on this and give a quick little plot synopsis and I will interject as necessary with my scholarly comments. Okay, so we start off at, like, I assume, I've seen these in every Fast and Furious movie I've seen, but at one of these extremely high rent street races where everyone is both flat broke because they're all like, oh man, we gotta, like, I need to win this so we can, I don't know, buy you a crib, baby. Um, pay rent if I recall pay rent. correctly. Yeah, yeah. He specifically yeah. says pay rent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but they're also driving the most souped-up cars I've ever seen. Perfect, untouched by like anything. These cars literally came out of the factory yesterday and got souped up this morning. And they're also paying playing for how much money? Um. Do we say? Do they say? Because yes, they're racing they're, for a ton of money. They're racing for, I think, thirty-five large. Is that three? I think it's thirty-five hundred. Thirty-five hundred. Okay, that is uh, less money. That okay. That is still a lot of money, but that's like, you know, I, I can understand now that this is. No, never mind. I'm really confused. No. No, I'm it's still really confused. That, that's a baffling, a baffling amount of money. Yeah, it's still a baffling amount of money to be putting down 
on a street race. Um, yeah. Um, so Te- Tej, who is ludicrous, and I'm going to mix up, I'm probably going to call him ludicrous because I'm pretty sure the character is, hey, ludicrous, you did move, bitch, right? And Ludacris is like, yeah, I did move, bitch. And they're like, do you want to be in Fast and Furious? I'm almost certain move, bitch has to be before Too Fast, Too Furious, right? Um, yes, because it's referenced in the movie by Suki, one of the racers, who tells um, one of the other racers to, quote, move, bitch. Exactly. Okay. So... Tej calls up Brian O'Connor, the guy who used to be in the LAPD but fell in love with um, with Dom Toretto and thus is no longer in the LAPD and says, hey, you can join this race. He wins the race against drivers. Oh, including Suki, who um, is introduced here. Suki is played by Devin Aoki, has literally the coolest car I've ever seen in my life. It has like an anime girl. Yeah. Like an animated anime girl on the dash, and I've—it's just incredible. Yeah, she's she's a trans icon. Yeah, she she loses <laughs> because she's up against Paul Walker or Brian who, O'Connor, who is a car magician. Yeah, who also drives the ugliest car I've ever seen. It's this like his like famous Nissan Skyline. But first of all, the Nissan Skyline is not a pretty car. Mm-hmm. And he has it silver and blue. So it looks like it looks like one of those things that you see that like some police department in Northern California has bought mm-hmm. with their massive budget. Like yeah. it still has heavy cop vibes. So he wins and then is arrested mm-hmm. because of illegal driving. And then he's taking he's arrested, by the way, through the use of quote ESDs which I don't think are real. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I didn't notice that until later because this is like a Chekhov's gun thing. Um, mm-hmm. We can talk about... I'm going to mention them when I realize them. Yeah. So he's given this deal by his former boss, a FBI agent Bilkins, and then this U.S. Customs agent named Markham, mm-hmm. which is really funny because this is all a customs heist. Or like... Yes. The, the, the like cops in this are all customs officers which is just Mm -hmm. funny to me because it's customs and tells them to go undercover and bring down the drug lord carter verone in exchange for his criminal record being cleared um they need help especially because agent monica fuentes who is a customs agent again (laughs) has all of our special agents are customs agents everyone except for bilkins is a customs agent she's been undercover with him for a year and Brian agrees on the condition that he can choose his partner. So he goes off to Barstow to find Roman Pierce. And I only remember Barstow. I have no idea where it is. But they say Barstow constantly. It's, it's a constant running theme in the movie that, like, no one likes Barstow. Yeah. Which I gotta say is some pretty bad press for fucking Barstow. Yeah, Barstow is in San Bernardino County, California, United States. Okay, I know where it is now. Um... So he goes to this demolition derby race and finds Roman, who is Tyrese Gibson, and also fascinating, most fascinating part of this movie because he's been in like every movie since and he's a total joke in all of them. And here he is a deuteragonist. Um, 
So Roman and Brian get into the worst fight ever put to film. Um, <laughs> we're literally one Brian is yelling like you've always been shit at fighting and then says like I'm gonna choke you. Yeah, Brian announces his moves like he's in goddamn yeah. Naruto. They're rolling around on the ground like so I've been watching a lot of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia lately because mm-hmm. that's kind of the headspace I'm at. And this is an always sunny in Philadelphia fight. Like, yeah, like Brian has bad in it. Brian has his legs wrapped around Roman, like he's trying to give birth to him. Yeah. Like, it's so wild. They're just becoming this mass of human flesh. Mm-hmm. And I got to tell you, after twelve watches, that fight gets worse and worse. <laughs> so. Roman blames Brian for his arrest, but he agrees because Bri- Brian says we can both have our records cleared. Mm-hmm. Which also, that's not a thing. This no. is this is this is one of the most I, I know I'm gonna latch on to that, but it's also just like this movie, nothing that happens in it makes sense in a very like subtle way. <laughs> Yeah, this movie is very much operating. I, I think some this is something that struck me about the Fast and Furious movies that, that, that really strikes me in Fast and Furious 2, Too Fast, Too Furious, is mm-hmm. that these movies operate on cartoon logic. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting is that with Fat, Too Fast, Too Furious, they're trying not to, and it doesn't oh, yeah. work. So they get two cars, which are also ugly as sin, that have been like confiscated. And they it's compete. important to note that uh, Roman's car says hater on it. It does say hater on it, yes. Um, and they get into this thing where they're going to compete against rival drivers to get this mysterious package from this confiscated Ferrari with Verone basically hiring. It's a test. Verone, the drug lord, which that his name flows through my head like water because... This man has no character traits intentionally, but accidentally, the guy who plays him, who is this? This is Cole Hauser, gives him the voice of like a man from a movie produced in the 50s. He talks like this the whole time. And I, I cannot understand if it's supposed to be this like overcompensation for an accent or something, or if it's supposed to tell us something, because to me, it just sounds like. He just walked out of 12 angry men. That's yeah, it's, 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 very, it's very funny because there's a scene in the movie where um, Roman does an impression of Carter and it's the most dissonant fucking thing in the oh, yeah. world. Roman's impre- his, Roman his is doing an of, impression of like, you know, the average, like the drug lord that I imagine they wrote this movie planning for. Yeah, it, it's like this scene was filmed before, like, they had the actor playing Carter Verone, like, talk to Roman, because he says, like, hey, you, I'll take my cutter back. And it's like, that's not how yeah. he sounds. And this is Cole Hauser playing yeah. him, who's like, you know, his great-grandfather was Harry Warner, a founding partner of Warner Brothers. Like, he's just, 
the and he hasn't played like I'm really confused. He mostly plays CIA agents mm-hmm. and like sergeants and stuff because he's a like clean Irish, like Irish German Jewish guy. Like and and he here he is playing an Argentinian drug lord. Yeah. Um it's Wait, it's okay. You can be a German guy and also an Argentinian drug lord. I was gonna say, like, that's not necessarily the biggest contradiction <laughs> yep. in the world, but it does yep. it does raise some pretty bad questions about Carter Verone's <laughs> legacy and like his lineage. Um so okay. I during the race, like there's crashes and stuff because it's very like it's it's very brutal, it's very cutthroat. Also, one driver gets Murder a pancake by a truck. The, this... the movie does not seem to realize that it just showed a man turn into gelatin, but mm-hmm. it does. Yeah, I, I want to hone in on this scene for a second because it's the most batshit wild thing. Because this is the only death in this movie. Oh, yeah, it is. This is the only time the stakes have been raised to the level of death. This is the one death in the movie and it's brushed aside like mm-hmm. it's fucking dust off of this off of someone's suit jacket like and to be clear it's a death because you there is a lurid kind of fascinated scene or like sequence where it shows this car get slowly run over by a big rig carrying rocks like mm-hmm. it would be harder to come up with a better shorthand for this is heavy and squishing the car totally yeah and it's just it it happens and like this can't the camera just like takes loving detail and like showing like the fucking car buckling under the under the tires and then it gets run over and then they're just like all right cool anyways and it's like baffling because again this is the only death in this movie this is like a very deathless movie. It's very bloodless. Like, or there is blood, but even it's, I'm going to talk about it later when I talk about the rat. Um, so Markham, the incredibly dumb customs agent, thinks the duo is trying to run away, then follows him to the lot. And then Roman shoots at Markham. Um, and then they manage to, and then they manage and then they get the job. They meet um, Verone. Verone has this weird habit that he starts here of he has everybody come and sit down and then immediately makes them stand up and walk and talk with him. I actually have a very robust theory about this. And I think it's because he gets the nicotine zoomies. <laughs> he does. Yes. He's, one of his only character traits is that he loves smoking. He loves smoking okay, no. I don't know if he loves smoking cigars, but he does have a little cigar cutter and he loves cutting cigars. He does love cutting cigars. I don't know if I, if we see him smoke at any point. We see him smoke. He has not smoked more than a quarter of any cigar that has ever been on screen. Yes. He just likes cutting them. And sometimes he smokes them so that people don't think he only likes cutting them. Yeah. Uh, Like he, in, in their walk, he throws away like a fucking a cigar that is literally an eighth of the way smoked. And I am enraged by that. 
then there's this like meeting where Roman and Brian meet with the cops and Barst or not Barstow, what's his name? Markham, Markham. The, the customs guy holds Roman at gunpoint for shooting <laughs> at him. It's hilarious. And then Roman immediately afterwards steals his lunch. Which mm-hmm. is something- so Roman is always eating during the movie and later we find out why. But it's really funny this whole time. He also like the whole time he keeps on going like we're hungry. So then Brian and Roman challenge the guys who were two of the guys earlier who were trying to be hired with the stakes being their cars. The highest stakes. Which is while like another thing where you think about it for two seconds and you go, why? Like, why would anyone agree to this? Yeah. um, I also just want to like go... Uh, rewind for a second and go back to so you know the plot point where um, Markham thinks they're running and then he holds uh, Roman at gunpoint yes if you think that that is going to go anywhere no. that is going to have any effect on the movie the answer is no it doesn't do shit but Brian and Roman now they now they win the race by doing admittedly the one cool the one thing that I thought was actually an interesting action move in this, which is mm-hmm. Brian plays chicken. Like they're hopelessly behind and it's kind of a relay race. But Brian plays chicken with the other with the guy in I think the Dodge Challenger. Yeah. So Fonzie. he has to swerve away and then that gives Brian space to win, which was actually cool and I think like an interesting character moment. Mm-hmm. Where it's trying to establish that he's not actually like his skill with driving is this fearlessness, except yeah. he's also a car wizard. That's the thing is like, yes, on the one hand, that is a character trait. On the other hand, though, that's just like, like, I think he's not afraid to die because he knows he is like a car wizard. Like, yeah. He has no fear of death because as long as he's in a car, nothing can hurt him. And then they go to uh, to a nightclub. And this is the second time. First of all, Verone has my favorite, one of my favorite lines in the movie where he goes on is like, women, you see, they can control men and do anything. And to do anything, just watch that lady over there. <laughs> um, and then nothing then you forget about that and then he has i believe he leaves and then has them come meet him in his private box like there's two separate meetings at this nightclub so they go to his so roman and brian mm -hmm. go to his private box and then he immediately has them stand up and leave again well because he gets the nicotine zoomies (laughs) yeah and they go to a more private box where then that lady brings in this guy who's uh, Miami PD Detective Whitworth, um, who's one of the crooked cops. And you find out, you found out earlier that Verone has a lot of people in Miami on his payroll. And that's why we can't involve the local cops. Instead, it has to be all special customs agents. And car wizards, Brian O'Connor and and Roman Pierce. Roman Pierce is not a car wizard. Roman Pierce is a hungry, hungry boy. And and all I ever, I don't think I ever see him do anything impressive. No, he just kind of like, I will say it's like, 
I think the, what you're supposed to get is like the impression that like he's impressive because he can keep up with our magic man, Brian O'Connor. Uh, so yeah, Roman, to be clear, I think is supposed to be this like hard badass. Mm-hmm. Especially because we no longer have Dom Toretto, the hardest, baddest ass. Mm-hmm. But the problem is Tyrese Gibson plays him as like kind of petty and silly. He's like an anime sidekick where he's always eating and he's always like stealing tiny things and mm-hmm. doing these really little power moves. And it doesn't come off cool. It comes off like at one point he tries to steal the cigar cutter. And there's this little exchange where he's like, I mean, I figured you'd have a lot of them. And then Verone's like, no, give it back. Get out, get out, get out. Then he and tries to steal the cigar. Then he tries to steal the cigar cutter a second time. Yeah, it's it's so like pathetic on both parts. Yeah, my favorite part about the second attempt at stealing the cigar is that um, Verone is just like, come on, like Verone is treating him like a literal like oh, yeah. child who has got their hand stuck in the cookie jar. But now I want to talk. So Verone. Get ties this detective down and says, like, we need we need a window, 15-minute window where none of your boys will do anything. And Detective Whitworth says we can't do it. So he ties him down, puts a rat on Whitworth's chest, and puts a bucket over the rat, and then starts heating up the bucket. And says something along the lines, I think I wrote down the quote. You did. Um, which is genuinely one of my favorite moments in the movie. It's so good. Um, oh, it's, do you know your average rat can choose through its steel drain pipe? You have nothing to fear when he screams. It's when it stops that you should worry. Because he's heating up this <laughs> bucket. So that the rat will eventually chew through, I like chew through Whitworth's chest. That's the implication: <laughs> is that he's going to reverse chest burster this man. I, I um, will say um, this is it is a belly burster because uh, Roman, oh, uh, yes. not Roman, Ver, uh, Verone makes a jab at the detective's weight for no reason. Oh yeah, um, and obviously this works because it's horrifying but then he lifts the bucket because this man has been first first uh, the detective screams and then he he's kind of whimpering and almost weakened and you feel and i thought for sure with the way he was reacting that there was a rat like playing in his intestines at this point mm-hmm. and then they lift the thing and this rat has like slightly scratched him and so i briefly had rats me and my partner mm-hmm. and I've been scratched by rats and like I've had the wounds this man has had. <laughs> I've woken up like because they like nibbling on my feet. I, they really like to bite feet um, mm-hmm. among the other just absurd things rats do. Biting feet is one of them, especially toenails. Uh, sorry, this is really gross, but <laughs> just has like a couple scratches on his belly and I imagine that's terrifying, but it's also really funny for him to be like, please, otherwise I can get you the thing. And then you look it up, you open it, and it looks like like 
he he you know it looks like he took a light fall yeah it looks like he was trying to shave his belly yeah and like for the first time and he got a little cut up um i totally skipped over this because i cannot remember where it is because it doesn't matter but Mm -hmm. at some point during this middle act we see tej's um we see his garage in the daylight and you realize that tej is not this cool like hero of the people he Mm -hmm. owns first of all an incredibly nice mechanic or an incredibly nice car shop like Mm -hmm. which is on the water on a beautiful area like beautiful coast there's this constant party going on outside it and he is brian's landlord and you realize this man doesn't need to be like he's running these races and giving people like 35 large and he is beyond wealthy no he is stupidly wealthy this occurs just so we have a nice idea of chronology this occurs before the meeting with markham where yes, he threatens yes. and um it occurs directly before I think Roman does a microaggression. Oh, yeah. Oh, tell me. Oh, yes. Wait, which one was this? Roman does a lot of microaggressions. Um, This was the microaggression where he, I guess it's a macroaggression because he did set their car on fire. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Roman is like kind of like very, very weird to Verone has to, uh, two henchmen who are just the most henchmen of all time. Roberto um, and Enrique. And they're both very like, so Verone is the least like Latin Latin person of all time. And these two henchmen li- are using total like, you are, the only thing you're supposed to know about them is that they are from a place that speaks Spanish. Mm-hmm. And and the movie wants you to know that so much. Yeah, I think most of their lines, if I recall correctly, are in Spanish. Oh yeah, they they a lot of their lines are in Spanish unless they're talking to Roman or Brian, who they speak to in English because Roman and Brian do not speak anything other than English. Uh, <laughs> uh, except for in the beginning of the movie where uh, Brian speaks one word oh, yes. of Spanish. Actually, there are two instances. Where Roman, where uh, Brian speaks Spanish, there is the beginning of the movie where he says, uh, where he assents to uh, playing for thirty-five large, and then uh, near the end of the movie, um, where he just asks the henchman who, and that's the only Spanish yeah. he speaks. But I just wanted to mention that because Tish is a fashion fascinating character in this movie. Mm-hmm. But we go ahead. Then Monica, the, uh, you know, the undercover, the undercover customs officer who there's been kind of this weird will they, won't they with Brian and also the implication that she's secretly fallen in love with Verone mm-hmm. and like is going to betray them because of that, except neither of these are really brought to the forefront. Yeah, um. I think I told you a while ago before we recorded that, like, I don't think that there's a single subplot in this movie. No, there isn't. And I stand by that. 
quite frankly, because like all of these attempts at side plots are being made and like none of them come to fruition at all. There's a lot of side pools, but they don't yes. have a ot at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, so Monica shows up in Brian's houseboat and says like, they're going to kill you once you drop off the money because that's the job they're going to do. And then there's the dumbest moment where the two henchmen are like poking through the windows trying to see what's going on. I don't understand why they're there. And then they get into this another terrible fight, except <laughs> this time it ends in one of them holding a gun to Roman and Brian holding a gun to one of them and them just yelling at each other. You put the gun down. No, 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 you put the gun down. Mm-hmm. It, it just re- over and over. Nothing changes until Veron shows up and is like, glad you guys are getting along because you're each going to be driving with one of them in the car. And, and then it kind of like, there's not really tension there either because mm-hmm. there's not this like creeping tension between these men. They just hate each other. Yeah. And there's no tension because we already know why they're in the car. Like, because mm-hmm. they're going to kill them. Like, mm-hmm. there's no fucking like room for the audience to be like, well, why are they going to be in the car? Uh-oh, there might be something that it's just like, no, the movie's like, no, they're going to kill them. You mm-hmm. need to understand this. And then Markham, remember, the customs man refuses to call this off, claiming it's their one cat chance to catch Verone. And this is where I learned that in Fast and Furious, customs officers decide who lives or die. <laughs> who lives or dies. Like, yeah, it's seriously like, we can lose, like, you know, a small price to pay to catch a drug lord who also, to be clear, we've never actually been convinced that this is a bad man. Like, we see him do the thing with the rat, which is terrible, mm-hmm. but I don't actually know what he's doing. <laughs> yeah, he just kind of has money. <laughs> yeah, he's doing, they say import-export. Mm-hmm. And, like, I guess, that, like, it, it's very much predicated on, you have to understand, if customs is against him, it means he needs to go down. Yeah. Which is, an e- which is, I didn't think there was a harder sell than, just trust me, TM, from a cop. But I think this is it. <laughs> yeah, being told just trust me by a customs officer is the hardest sell in the history of like, film. So they start transferring these duffel bags in the ugliest cars in the world mm-hmm. with Rones, with Enrique and Roberto riding alongside. Then Whitworth, the guy we hate, decides to call the police to arrest the drivers of those cars ahead of time for no i don't understand why it's his big moral choice which is dampered by the fact that he has appeared on screen exactly one time before them he has no he this is the second time that he has like short-term amnesia and forgets that he's going he's going after brian and roman Mm -hmm. like he he's the one who put the tracker in those cars like I, I did not understand that. So then they go to a warehouse and there's this cool scramble where hundreds of street racers that Tej has put together disorient the cops. And then the cops immediately manage to pull over the ugly cars. But mm-hmm. wow, they did a swap. And now those ones are driven by Tej and Suki. This is Suki's like only thing she does that isn't periodically saying something really a total 
like <laughs> non sequitur sexual thing. Except yeah, they're, they're so non sequitur that it kind of doesn't even feel like fan service or like, you know, like kind of like weird eye candy stuff because it's at one point, what does she say? Like um, when she's driving just randomly. So- so she says, there are a couple things that she says. Um, the first thing that she says is bend over boy, which is mm-hmm. too fast, too furious, being very progressive and making a pegging reference, which I appreciate. <laughs> and secondly, she, uh, when she leaps over, because I don't think we fucking yes. hit on this, but oh, yeah. Tej breaks into the bridge control and has the mechanic, Jimmy, uh, raise the bridge up so that there's a stunt ramp for them to like go off. And then Suki, after she jumps the bridge, she shouts, smack that ass to absolutely no one. <laughs> to her to her anime GF. Yeah. <laughs> there's a, it's like a Knight Rider car. Her car is sentient and an anime girl. Her car is a VTuber. Uh, yes. Um, so the cops then arrest Tejin Suki basically. And so now the two are in the muscle cars and this is this cool moment, except it stops. We're not actually going to the um, airport, which Roman, which Brian finds out after Roman has used an ejector seat. Oh yes, ejecto-cito. Shot um, uh, Roberto. No, it's Roberto. Okay. Okay. I think Shot. it's on. Re- Wait, let me d- let me double I'm check. I'm on Wikipedia because- right now. <laughs> okay, okay. Then I I trust Wikipedia more than I trust um, my own memory. He shoots Roberto out of an ejector seat, and the custom a- agents at the airfield had Verone's planes surrounded, but this is a decoy. So Verone then, after Brian pulls up to this new area reveals he knew Monica was an undercover agent and gave her wrong information on this destination. Brian arrives at this marina. Verone forces Monica onto his yacht and orders Enrique to kill Brian. Enrique's, the ejector seat, fails. And then suddenly Roman saves Brian. And then... It's Barstow, baby. It's about to get ugly. Then they drive a Camaro Mm -hmm. off a random ramp and crash on top of the yacht. And then... Brian shoots Roan and then Monica arrests him. Yeah. And we have this brief denouement where Markham grants Brian and Roman full pardons and then Roman in exchange turns over the second half of Roan's cash. And then they both reveal that they've like stuffed their pockets with cash. Yeah. And Roman ends the movie. The last line is him saying like, and we're going to be eating well or, or like, and we're not going to go hungry. As and, he we, reveals and we ain't hungry no more. Yes. His entire waistband is covered in stacks of cash. Yeah. And that's the end of Too Fast, Too Furious. Um, I do want to hone in very quickly on the car stunt, the final car stunt. Yes. Because at the end of the final car stunt, what happens is that Brian, because he's the the car wizard, yeah. has a mild, I think, a mild concussion, and that's yes. it. And Roman and Roman, has a broken arm. Roman fully breaks his arm. But here's the thing: they crashed into a yacht going about a hundred miles per hour in their oh, car, yeah. and they, they would have died. They make a dent in it, 
also i'm also i'll say it's funny because the crashing into the car is basically framed as winning like mm-hmm. except for the fact that they crash into a part that no one was on and we know there's other goons on this ship mm-hmm. and it's kind of implied what's her name um ava mendez's Mon- character monica, monica? Yeah. um i guess subdued him mm-hmm. because we the last we saw this henchman he was leading her away at gunpoint but it's kind of just like basically crashing the car into his boat is just this unbeatable checkmate like you can't actually beat it when someone uh crashes their car into your boat (laughs) because everyone knows car beats boat um i mean that's that's the yeah that's that's the unbreakable i was gonna say I was going to say car beats boat, boat beats plane, plane beats car, except this is Fast and Furious. And I, the last one I watched, they literally fly a car in space. Yeah, car beats everything in Fast and Furious. Like nothing can beat car. And they also, there is a bit where one of them take down a helicopter with a car, so. Oh yeah, there's um, in Hobbs and Shaw, they take down a helicopter with a car as well. Okay, Hobbs and Shaw also, I will give it a bit where it's this like secret extra thing that we mm-hmm. can give it a bit of a break for because it's always doing absurd things. That's kind of its point. Um, yeah. So wh- wh- what are we talking about now? So I just want to get, first of all, I want to get your experience with the movie and then I'm going to scream for approximately 10 straight minutes. So what was this movie like for you, Clay? When I first started watching it, I was thinking, I cannot imagine watching this every day ever. I like I've watched it once and now I'm done. Um, even that was maybe too much. And then as I watched it, I didn't change my mind on that really, but what I changed my mind of was that this is sort of just so absurd and so poor and just a mess that like there's actually a ton of stuff to latch onto and mm-hmm. think about accidentally because it's there's it's just a movie of hanging signifiers this movie yeah. of lost plots and kind of milk toast attempts to do anything if that mm-hmm. makes sense like like they really keep on wanting to grasp at things, but don't. And so I was ultimately left, like my mind was kind of rushing with ideas, but none of them intelligent or useful. Yeah. Like there's a whole thing where I was like, what is going on with Tej? And then I remembered there's nothing going on with Tej. Mm -hmm. Tej, like after this movie, by at least by like fast five he's not he's just a guy yeah yeah um i will say that i kind of i i kind of have one up to you in this sense because i got to the point where like when i was watching this movie i would sometimes have a question like i wonder what's up with suki and then my brain would immediately say that's an actor that's an actor playing a role you are sitting here watching a movie. You're going to die one day. And like, that was the only thing that my brain would say for any, any interesting plot point. 
<laughs> eventually ended with me thinking, I'm going to die one day. And like, oh my God. Yeah, this, this, this was painful, Clay. <laughs> this was really painful. I, I can imagine it. It's, it's, a, it's a deeply anti-thought movie, I feel like. Yeah. Um, I've, I feel myself like losing thoughts when I watch this movie. Like sometimes I'll go into the movie with like an idea for like a, a thing I need to write. And then like, I'll leave the movie and the only thought I'll have is like, man, cars sure go vroom vroom, don't they? And like, yeah, that's about it. Like, I feel, okay, this is one thing that might intrigue you. I've started developing physical symptoms. <laughs> okay. That is to say that whenever I have to watch Too Fast, Too Furious now, I physically feel a little nauseous and very sleepy. <laughs> oh, no. And this no. is... No. I'm only on the second week. This is bad. No, I'm worried about you. Yeah, um, I, I think it's my body priming me to die. <laughs> And the problem is that when I get sleepy, like one time I tried to take a nap in the middle of it. That was a fucking mistake because like I had dreams that were just the plot of Too Fast, Too Furious. Like my dream was just a recollection of the entirety of Too Fast, Too Furious. And then I woke up and finished the movie. So I kind of had a double feature for that, for that watch. I think that was watch nine. I think you have to give yourself credit for that. You gotta, you gotta take one day off the final endpoint. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I mean, Jesus Christ, this. Yeah, I think I really enjoyed the progress of my notes. I'm gonna show them to you real quick, even though no one will see them and you won't see them because I have a background on. Yeah, your notes look like. Um... Look like Paul Walker and Devin Aoki. Yeah. So basically, my notes went from like me having to bisect the page to like keep taking notes to a single column to me having several watches on the same page because I would take like one note per watch. And generally, the note was fuck this. It, it is a very, it's, it is a very fuck this movie. Yeah, um, it's fascinating what this is doing to me, quite frankly. Like, I'm very intrigued by the almost Dr. Manhattan-like headspace I have gotten into, where, like, this... So this last watch, I was actually kind of worried about doing this podcast after this last watch because um, the main thing I felt after this last watch was just pure contempt. Mm. I just watched, like, every single edit, every single, like shot I like saw the person in their fucking like editing software like make a click and I hated them like every shot I saw the person behind the camera and I hated that person I that person was nothing to me so I want to point to something which I'm now learning because I, I've decided to scroll down Wikipedia in yes. my attempt to bring intelligent thought to this yes which is 
Vin Diesel was offered $25 million to return in the sequels, you know, as Mr. Family Dom Toretto. Yes. But he refused after reading the screenplay because he thought it was bad and instead was in the Chronicles of Riddick. Yeah. Um, so, and then later he's reflected on his decision in the saying, like, I would have said, don't walk away from it because the script sucked because there's an obligation to the audience to fight to make that film as good as possible. I might have had little more patience or belief in the long term of it. Which, first of all, this is a lie. I don't believe anything he says past, like, 2010 on these movies because, Mm -hmm. like, this is now, you know, I don't blame him, but Vin Diesel now, this is his life. Yeah. This this is is, his money, like. This is his lifeblood. But also, yeah, even Vin Diesel thought this was too bad of a movie. Yeah, and, like, I don't know. I honestly, like, kudos to them because I don't know where Vin Diesel would... I have no idea where the fuck Vin Diesel would have gone in this movie. Like, straight up. He wouldn't be Roman Pierce. I mean, I assume that he would be Roman Pierce, but what they've done is changed Roman Pierce from a Vin Diesel type into Roman Pierce. (laughs) Yeah, Roman Pierce is not a, um, Roman Pierce is such a fucking enigma, Clay. Roman Pierce is a little weird, hungry boy. Mm -hmm. Like, he, there's this, he's so extremely un, like, he's so extremely uncool. Mm We're supposed to be intentionally really cool, but there's just this un- like unavoidable air because he's always there's all these times where he instead of like the movie treats what he says as something cool but he'll be like whose lunch is this or whatever like oh yeah Yeah. oh i forgot to say this in the um we find out the like cool backstory about why he's always stealing people's food (laughs) is he went to prison for three years and the food sucked there and now he's like, I don't know when I'm going to go back. So I'm going to eat as much as I can out here. Also, my doctor says I have a high metabolism. Which is the most frustrating thing because like it could have been an interesting and poignant statement on like him trying to live life as much as he could outside of prison. Mm-hmm. And instead it's like subverted by this. Oh, yeah. And also I have a high metabolism. Like the movie intentionally kills itself. Also. It would have been a poignant statement if it had gone literally, like, if he, it was synecdoche for the rest, but there isn't, it's not synecdoche for anything mm-hmm. else. It's literally, like, when he says, I wanted to live out, like, when he says, I want to eat as much as I can because the food sucks in there and he comes out, it doesn't really feel like he's referring to, he's not actually saying I want to live life as much as I can out here because that was, it was terrible being in jail for three years or in prison for three years. What he's saying is he's talking about literally the food in there and the food out here. Yeah. There's, there's no, no like, metaphor. Th- and this is actually probably the worst thing he says about prison mm-hmm. is that the food is terrible. Like, yeah. Like he, he's very angry that he spent three years in jail, which in prison, which like, Yeah. That yeah. sucks, but we never get a sense of why prison is bad for him. Mm-hmm. Except for, like, the food is not good. 
like I almost have a sense that if like uh Carter Verona had offered him a hot dog he would have like flipped on Brian yeah the only reason that Carter Verone like that he decided to go up against Carter Verone was that Carter kept on offering food and then making them walk yeah he kept getting his little walking is the opposite of eating as we all know it's yeah it's the platonic opposite yeah I want to talk a little bit more about the rat because yes the more I watch this movie the more I attempt to find meaning in the rat scene and the less meaning come that like I try to get out of it like happens like the more so, meaning I try to come that I try try to absorb from the rat scene the less meaning that I get so rats are like the most like when it comes to things to use in in symbology like you can get so much out of rats, right? I'm thinking about, off the top of my head, at least two movies that use rats um, in, like, a villain speech. I, for a brief period, was thinking about Ratatouille, <laughs> but that is not one of them. <laughs> but, you know, thinking about the... In Skyfall, there's that whole bit where the guy, Silva, I think, is like, my, my grandma taught me to turn rats into cannibals. And... It's about this speech, you know, it's about how he's now this like double O that preys on the other double O's and is going after his old boss. And also this idea that to become hard, you have to be like become some sort of metaphorical cannibal Mm -hmm. and that James Bond himself is this metaphorical cannibal, too. Yeah. Um. And this speech is empty of anything like that. It's delivered like one of these slow, you know, you know that a rat can chew through steel. And you're like, okay, oh, are you the rat, Verone? Yeah. Are you going to chew through steel? But and no. under heat, mm-hmm. they, like, they'll do it. And also... The only direction he has to go is south. And I'm like, yeah, okay, what does that okay. mean? Like... You know, it's it's setting up this, you know, right now he's kind of, I don't want to call him affable, but right now he's like a character in Mad Men. Mm-hmm. But under heat, he's going to become brutal. Yeah. But Except. he's this is the most brutal scene of his. And at the end, he just kind of points a shotgun around, which like, yeah, it's scary, but literally a good guy pointed a shotgun at Roman. Why am I mm-hmm. supposed to care about someone pointing a shotgun at Brian? Yeah. Um, I was thinking of, so in Deleuze and Guattari's A Thousand Plateaus, they talk about the movie Willard, um, in which in which um, the heroes, according to Deleuze and Guattari, are the rats. So I was coming at it through like, the lens of like, oh, is someone becoming a rat in this instance? Is someone like undergoing a sort of intensive shift to become like the rat? And no, <laughs> that's not what happens. Wait, Willard is the one with the the guy who becomes friends with rats and makes them like attack his boss, right? Yeah, yeah. I was thinking- Why like, are they writing there... about that? Wait, are these people from like, Okay, I, I, I'm running into my problem, which is 
I always think that every philosopher is from like 1950. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I forget that like these are also people that could watch Willard. Yeah, no, they watched Willard and they like wrote a good chunk of one of the plateaus on Willard. So I was thinking like, oh, is is Verone becoming rat? Like like you said, like yeah. is the rat him? Or maybe is the rat like synecdoche for Detective Wentworth? Is Detective Wentworth gonna rat him out? And, oh. But he doesn't rat him out. He just like, like I think there's a distinction between him ratting him out and him just doing his job. Also, you know, there's this focus on what the rats will chew through, what they'll eat under pressure. And we focused on Roman being yeah. like, hungry all the time mm -hmm. i don't know i think that this is so wild because it's one of the most obviously just like it it won't it's a hundred percent one of these big thematic statements except it's not yeah. so the movie pauses for a bit for him to wax poetic about rats yeah yeah, and like with, I think you're 100% right, with the backdrop of Roman's hunger, we're really like led to expect that like eating in some sense becomes some sort of fulcrum of the movie, but it just isn't. This movie, to be clear, has no fulcrum except for Brian. Like mm -hmm. the only, the, like this is all about Brian and not even about Roman like at all. Uh, no. Um, and I, this, mm -hmm. I was going to say, I think I know why. And I think this might be a good place to go to your next topic. Yes. Should I start saying why? <laughs> yes, please. So, mythopoetic. Myth oh my God, it's not mythopoetic. Uh, mm -hmm. Oh, it is mythopoetic. Okay, you can say either one. But mythopoetic or mythopoetic thought is this hypothetical hypothetical stage of human thought preceding modern thought um mm -hmm. the idea being before like before we humanity thought in generalization and in personal laws there's this kind of like the you know it's the idea that you see things as an act of will this is why we made myths right mm -hmm. um and then there's also, and so that's the very coming from there. And then there's just, in general, this kind of, it, and thus it comes into this idea, Tolkien used mythopoeia as like creating myths, creating this mythology. And I think the point of this movie was to turn Brian into a god. <laughs> I think you I think you're right because this ties into the final topic I wanted to talk about, which is the mythopoetic signification of the road. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. First of all, we never call it the road. It's the blacktop. Ludacris calls it the blacktop all the time, and it makes me so upset because I don't know, there's just something very transparent about it transparently cool mm -hmm. um and yeah the road is this first of all 
the road has turned into a wild and like almost like almost savage place. Mm-hmm. And I, I I I use that word very carefully. I know all the like it's not a good word to use most of the time, but there's this mm-hmm. like it's it's more basic. It's more like like these are people truly men being really men. Mm-hmm. They don't have this like modern, especially because the villain does not go on the road. He uses a boat, and he's like. I think he's supposed to. He's like a rich, mm-hmm. like he smokes cigars and he doesn't get his hands dirty. He doesn't get his hands dirty. He also walks a lot, which is the also as everyone knows, boats and boats are the opposite of the road. The ocean is the opposite of the road, but also while walking is the opposite of eating. Eating is tied to the road, um, because what do cars do but eat? I will I will say actually Clay I want to complicate this because I think I want to complicate this a little bit because I think the road becomes an ocean in this film like if we think about so Michel Foucault says that (laughs) in the minds of western man the sea has always been tied to madness and I want to interrogate the role of the crazy ass white boy as a madman. <laughs> Who calls him crazy ass white boy again? Um, he is called that by Roman. <laughs> so sorry. So the crazy ass white boy is this figure of truth that discombobulates all of our sensibilities, that comes to speak the truth to us. This this sort of truth of the road become ocean where we're not like in these stratified lanes. Uh, There's always this sort of mythical becoming of them weaving in and out of these lanes, in and Mm -hmm. out of these categories, as it were. I'll be frank. I don't know anything about street racing, but I'm convinced that weaving the way they do is actively detrimental because they're weaving on like an empty road. Mm -hmm. They... (laughs) They just love changing lanes. They're practicing for their road test. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Like, there's this way in which, like, the road... Okay, so the thing is that, like, the road reorients Brian and Roman's relationship. Because if you'll notice, Mm -hmm. they don't bond except on the road. Oh, yeah. Oh, the... Wait... Oh, you're right. They do bond their final, the reveal of the one exception to that mm-hmm. is he, although actually Roman tells the story about how he eats because the food in prison was terrible mm-hmm. on the border between the road on one side and the ocean on the yes. other. Yes. Wow. And that's um, really the ocean as the ultimate road. Yeah. Which is like, like there's a way in which like driving in this movie isn't so much playing chess because like in chess you've got these sort of set pieces like the knight can do this the pawn can do that yes in a sense driving in this movie is like playing go because there aren't like designated there's just all these different 
territories that are being made and remade as the as they keep driving so like they take the road and turn it into this sort of chthonic always changing organism almost that they navigate i think you're bringing you're bringing cyclonopedia in <laughs> i'm i am indeed oh uh, yeah the road the road the road is this chthonic thing in this movie oh no and like given and that you've read Cy- cyclonopedia or, or that you're reading it i'm curious because of how reliant cars are on oil if you could say a few words about cyclonopedia and its relation to too fast so everyone listening who hasn't read cyclonopedia which i kind of hope is most people um no i i like it i recommend it actually that was a mean joke um cyclonopedia by let me let me get the the citation because Mm -hmm. i want to direct people at this book um cyclonopedia is a horror book i think that mostly takes the form of fictional philosophical work about how the middle east is alive like the uh, like animated by oil and hungry Mm -hmm. by reza negaristani it is fascinating and really interested in how this world is like you know and how you could come up with the idea of and mix these the literal and fictional and come up with oil as a lubricant but like literally the lubricant of history Mm -hmm. like history moves not by the motion of great men, but by like the motion of the world, which is lubricated sometimes enough to move by oil. Also, it's alive <laughs> and sentient. The Middle East specifically because of all the oil. Mm-hmm. And so where that gets me here is that there's an implication then if we're going to take Cyclonopedia's outlook towards oil to this movie that first of all Verone is a fool for taking a boat because it's all oil and as long as you're interacting with this you're you're interacting with the organism and also there's the interesting idea that all these cars are the same (laughs) this is all one creature these cars that sort of the cars are literally the cars are God, mm-hmm. all of them together. And they're, they're not the, the, the re it makes Brian's car wizardry, not the actions of a car wizard, but rather like the chosen of this God. And he's chosen because um, I think because he was merciful to their other chosen Dom Toretto. <laughs> like, I think that, I think, and that's the only reason. Like, why do the um, cars leave? Why do the muscle cars decide to become friends with Brian and Roman over 
Fonzie, which was the name of the guy who drove the Mustang. Fonzie and, and Fabio. It's, it's because the the cars are fickle. Yes. I I think like there's this sort of way in which Brian is not so much becoming a god, but in but he is himself. And this kind of sets up the trajectory of the rest of the Fast and Furious movies, but he is kind of becoming a car in a way. He is, he is, he is becoming a car. And I want to emphasize again, I think that both the, I think um, Roman's comments about eating totally go in with this, the idea of a person as a car of, you know, your food as fuel. And you need mm-hmm. good fuel. You need nitrous. You need these things to be able to move. And then the fact that we never see Verone eat. Mm-hmm. He's not a car. Yeah. He's always moving, but he's not eating. And that's like, I feel like, you know, that's a fundamentally biological way to look at it. Like, you know, there isn't a one-to-one translation of bites you take and steps you take. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Which is not what, that's not, you know, that's not the canticle of the car. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're, yes, I think, I think so. I, yeah, I'm, I'm really curious about like this reading of Brian as like a madman prophet of the road, as it were. Oh, Oh, yes, absolutely. Oh, he's, it's every line he says drips it. He's always talking about how, what what are some of my lines, some of the lines of his that I was focused on? I don't remember. At one point he says, all I copied down, all I copied down was Roman's lines because Roman says things like, it's a oasis in here. When they go to the club and then he immediately says, oh, damn, you got a pen like Mm -hmm. to write down numbers. And it's that that's my thing with Roman is he's always saying these he's always brought down to earth. There's a fundamental human. So Roman is the Roman here is represents man. Roman Roman is where (laughs) is where. We reach up to the car and try uh-huh. to hold, like it is where the ground meets the car, where the, mm-hmm. where the, uh, which this asserts, where man meets the car, that that holding on to the wheel, but more importantly, that pushing down the gas pedal, because at one point when Brian is driving but has to hand over the wheel to the henchman. He still keeps his foot on the gas pedal because that's the fundamental connection. Fast and Furious doesn't care about steering; it just cares about going. The, um, the gas pedal and the foot sort of assemblage that's constructed is almost like a placenta. <laughs> so, Roman is the gas pedal and the foot. Yes, that's like his symbolic role here, and mm-hmm. that is where human meets car and creates this sort of gestalt entity that is holy and above anything else. And Brian is special because, you know, he's this even when he's not driving. He lives in 
a uh, he lives on a boat, which is, as we've established, a kind of car. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a boat owned by Tej, who is like kind of a car prophet. Like mm-hmm. he he has a his own sacred relationship with the cars yeah. because he fixes them and he runs the races, which are like high he, rights. He facilitates. I think of him as like a sort of uh, adjudicator of the car. He's a psychopomp type thing. Yeah. <laughs> Well, like he sets up the like, rules of the race. Yeah. Like he, and he's always the one who interjects with like, let's settle this on the street. Let's settle this on the blacktop. He's always oh, bringing yeah. us back to the fundamental symbolic relation of the car. And um, no, I don't really have anything that I was going to say Suki is something, but Suki is nothing for like real talk. <laughs> One, I'm. I know we're not. T- t- this isn't the Suki re- episode, but mm-hmm. there's Suki is Suki. Real talk, Suki is just there to like be a hot woman mm-hmm. in a cast that is other that is otherwise like incredibly poisoned with by testosterone. Like just oh God, yeah. everyone is so overly overly like manly and bombastic and it's Mm -hmm. cartoonish yeah so she has no mythopoetic meaning she's just suki she she just has a really cool car (laughs) and okay there's one more thing what what do they say is it american 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 muscle muscle. american muscle Mm -hmm. so First of all, it's worth noting they keep talking about American muscle with the two muscle cars that they win in the battle. But also there's kind of this thing of they American muscle being both the cars and Brian. Yes. And Roman, but like it, Brian's the one who says it, I think. Mm-hmm. Again, um, it's actually like, it's actually Roman who says American muscle the second time. Oh no, never mind. Okay. So, and it's this thing of like, they, it's another moment when they are the cars. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the cars, yeah, they start to become, and I think one thing that's really interesting that to go back to your earlier point about Roman, Roman is always trailing Brian. Yeah. He's always in the case of following him. Even when Roman in the first car, in the second car race scene on their way to the Ferrari, even when Roman pulls ahead, Brian immediately pulls ahead of him and turns his car around, thus establishing his uh, sort of credentials, as it were, as the crazy-ass white boy. <laughs> really? That there's, there's sort of a cosmology here where car the car is the world the car is like the most basic primordial god and then humanity is following and like trying to become closer to the cars and the prophet there is the crazy ass white boy and then the opposite of a car is a rat yes there we go there and we rats go. like to walk and half smoke cigars 
Perfect. I think we've solved it. <laughs> All right. Well, Clay, thank you so much for coming on. Um, uh, do you have any pluggables you'd like to plug? Okay. At some point in the future, going to be releasing. Um, well, the uh, tsunami warning siren just went off. I hope you can't hear that too loud. Um, don't worry. It's the uh, practice one that they do on the first of every, what's mm -hmm. it called? Um, I have a podcasting thingamajig called Wasteland Radio, where we released the last show, which is a audio drama about college radio after the apocalypse. And we're in production for a new show, a culinary horror show called Another Man's Poison with Carver Levine. And that one going to be coming out in the next month or so. Really exciting. Also, I wrote a whole supplement for JJ Dragon's Wander Home that is about the, you know, the mythopoetic power of our favorite road, the sea. Um, that you can find if you look up Oversea Wander Home or just go to klubi.itch.io. Great. Uh, thanks so much for coming on, Clay. And um, yeah, I'm going, I, en I enjoyed making this podcast episode with you. <laughs> I'm glad I could bring some joy to this. Sis no, I'm not going to try and say that word because I don't know how to pronounce it. But this ordeal that's like the guy who pushes a rock up a hill. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, so thank you all for listening. And uh, until next time, uh, have a good one. Too fast. Too furious. I'm too fast for y'all, man.